It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show today, Mr. Scott Shepard. Good morning, Scott. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Welcome from the southern United States. It's uh, very hot here, but I'm glad to be here and very excited to participate. Well, I checked the temperature before we got on the call, Scott, and the official temperature, I believe, said hotter than a camel's ass was the official reading. That's pretty hot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Scott, I don't often do an introduction in terms of background, but I'm going to do it today because I think it's extra important. Scott Shepard is a affectionately known now self-proclaimed reformed racist who is a a former uh, grand dragon within the Ku Klux Klan and has now turned his life around for the better. And I wondered if you could just explain the genesis of where this all came about to paint a picture for people that aren't super duper familiar with the Klan and this white supremacy movement that you were involved with for such a long time. You're talking about how I got involved, right? Yeah. Well, I was born in 1959 in Indianola, Mississippi. And uh, it was right in the middle of the hotbed of racial trouble at the time. It was also the home of B.B. King and the White Citizens Council. I was uh, raised in a very dysfunctional family. had an alcoholic father that was very, very violent. And uh, there was times when he would come into the house and tear all the furniture up. It would be a piece of sitting on the... uh, you know, standing on its legs, and it abused my mother. And, of course, there was five kids there in the house, and actually it probably instilled PTSD in all of us. I know it did me, because uh, just to name the two things that uh, I witnessed, and it wasn't the worst, but uh, it it was bad. And when he would chop and come in with a butcher knife, chop up the mattresses in the house and slice them up. Uh, we had uh, some baby kittens next to a heater in our den uh, trying to keep them warm. And he came in and in drunken rage and took each one of those kittens one by one and threw them across the room and splattered them on the wall right in front of us. So those are just two things that I've witnessed and uh, 
like I said, there was many more, but uh, yes, it uh, it affected me pretty bad, and I didn't have any self-esteem. I didn't like myself. I didn't. I hated myself. I didn't like anyone, and uh, I didn't feel like I had a family, which I actually family was destroyed, very dysfunctional, and I was looking for something to fit into. Right there in the back of my backyard was the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, that's where I, the direction I went. Now, later on, later on, as, as I got into the movement, some I even sought out the Italian Mafia and tried to get involved with the Italian Mafia. But I was, so, I was the smartest person in the world at that time, you know. And I didn't. I was so naive, I didn't know you had to be full-blooded Italian to get inside there. But that, that didn't work out. <laughs> but I did make contact with them. And also the Irish Republican Army that was in New York City doing some recruitment at the time. But uh, me being from uh, Indianola, Mississippi, a very small town and very you know, deep south, you know, of course, I didn't have any way to get to New York City, and so that didn't work out either. And I'll tell you this, if, it, if ISIS if ISIS had been around, it's very possibility I could have gotten involved with something like that. Wow, you didn't think about joining Scouts or, uh, you know, Cub Scouts or... Uh... Well, actually, I was a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout. Oh, wow. Yeah, it sure was. And I always felt, uh, I didn't always, I always felt out of place in those two groups, really. Why do I didn't you think, feel comfortable. Yeah, why do, you, why do you think that was, Scott? Well, because I had low self-esteem and uh, like I said, I just, I didn't like anyone. I didn't like, I didn't like myself and I was just... It wasn't. It wasn't what I was looking for. What I was looking for was actually love, and I would say that's what I was looking for. And uh, when I got inside the Ku Klux Klan, I had an immediate feeling of importance, and I said, "Oh, I found what I'm looking for." The the Ku Klux Klan, uh, in in my in my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Scott was set up in the late 1800s uh, as a way to run tyrannical uh, like governors out of particular parts of, of that southern part of America. And it wasn't actually an inherently racist organisation at all. It was more like a, an organisation that was banding together to, you know, there was a, um, a statesman that had increased taxes three, threefold and it was to protect a lot of the white and black farms farmers, and then there was that the general that was a, a, a famous Confederate general that's got that huge big statue. There was that that uh, the rebranding or the renaming that because it started to get violent and it started to get a bit out of hand. So he actually disbanded the clan, and then it was reformed later on and, and became a lot more racist and, and then eventually became what it, what it is today. Does that sound about right? Well, that's pretty close, but there was also, even before Nathan Bedford Forrest, I think is the general you're talking about. Yeah, that's the one. He, uh, 
I mean, there was there was some violence going on even before you know before he disbanded them. Uh, so they've been they've been a terrorist organization since the beginning of time. You know, they would use their use their ropes and hoods to uh, intimidate blacks and even and, and yes, even whites that so they felt weren't doing right. So uh, you know, it was a terrorist organization from the very beginning. So talk me through what a day in the life of being a Grand Dragon, which is someone incredibly senior within the clan. What's that like? Well, Grand Dragon, of course, I was appointed the Grand Dragon when I was 19 years old. And that's really not, you know, not, you know, doesn't really happen that much. It's always older people. But I was 19 years old and I uh, was appointed Grand Dragon and, on the level of politics, like you know, you got your mayor, governor, and president. The Grand Dragon is equal to the governor of uh, a country. I mean, of a state here in you know, like here in the United States. I'm not sure if y'all got providences or parishes or what in Australia or counties, but uh, it was a head of a state. We got states, yeah, states, and then the federal government. Right. And the Imperial Wizard was uh, like the president. Now, before I finally left the, uh, the clan, I was appointed. I went to another clan organization and was, in, uh, was appointed Imperial Wizard of that clan organization, top, you know, the top position. But I didn't stay there very long because I was already planning an exit to get out, and uh, that's what I did. I turned my back and walked away. Well, I'd ordinarily say congratulations for any other field, but given it's the clan, I think we'll probably skip it on this occasion. The, um, the, the role that you were playing there, Scott, from what I can understand, it was more of a shot caller type of role. What type of things were you responsible for in that role? Well, I was responsible for, uh, you know, passing orders down from the Imperial Wizard to the normal uh, uh, clansmen, just regular clansmen below me in uh, different parts of the state. But I was also in very heavily involved in recruitment. And even though I was Grand Dragon, I think all my uh, energy and, and uh Work that I did was in recruitment, trying to get other people inside the clan, and and, and trying to bring the ranks up to uh, higher numbers. Are you able to share with us, Scott, some of the some of the things that you have been responsible for when you're in the clan? Well, like I said, I, I was responsible mainly for. Like when we were having lawsuits, uh, you know, we were having rallies. I was, excuse me, uh, was responsible for uh, putting rally rallies together in the different uh, parts of the state. Uh, we've had to, we had to file lawsuits in Nashville in federal court when we were denied permits, and I was uh, responsible for filing those. Uh, lawsuits, and then, like I said, back 
to the uh, recruitment, and I was very heavily into recruiting. And I, one, one, one reason I guess that happened was, you know, I went to college and I became a funeral director in the environment, and I had to wear a suit and tie every day. You know, that's just how it was. And uh, I think they kind of, you know, extorted it or, or used that because uh, they were working on image change, trying to be, become more mainstream and uh, blend into society. And here I was, I had to wear a suit every day. I think they kind of exploited that. I think probably more my questions more around the the violence and the disruption side of things. You know, like is it is it what they talk about in the clan and like lighting a cross on fire in the front lawn of someone? You know, was oh, there yes. that type of thing? Oh yes, that, that, that was one of the main main tools that they used for uh, intimidation, and then of course uh, if, if, if the Cross burning intimidation didn't work. Uh, they would definitely go back and uh, go to more aggressive means, and there was uh, a lot of beatings and and to actually to near death of uh, the people they were beating. How is the clan funded, Scott? Where do they get their money from? Uh, they actually they have. Uh, you know, the membership pays dues. Of course, uh, a lot of the members, you know, weren't really wealthy. But inside, inside the clan, there are lawyers and doctors that are inside there. And then they took, uh, they take donations from the general public, that people that might not be a member of the clan that believed in their beliefs, and they would donate money to them, and they would use that, and that's what they are. Uh, operated on now at one time there was a group called the order that uh killed alan berg a talk show host in the united states in colorado i think it was but they at that time they were involved in robbing armored cars and uh banks and using the money to you know uh further their goals wow so it's like a, a properly run organization <laughs> really, when you when you break it down, a properly run sort of domestic terrorist organization, I suppose. Well, exactly, and I can, but you know, they're not just domestic anymore. You know, they, they, as you may well know, they're they're in Australia and they're in the UK. Uh, they're in the different parts of the world now, mainly in, in like London, England, and. That, that part of the uh, nation. And, and do, as a percentage of the population, let's say in the US, do you have any idea of the numbers of uh, as a percentage? Oh, gosh. At one time, I thought the numbers were fading, going backwards. But uh, recently, I've taken a second look at it, and I've really been blown away at the, at the uh, amount of, memberships you know that have grown and it's not just you know it's not just people in the Ku Klux Klan or but say you got me you don't have just one Ku Klux Klan you got several several many 
different independent Ku Klux Klans, you know, too. So you don't really know the number of the membership that they have. So it's hard to, you know, kind of estimate what they, you know, how many members they got. And then you got different other organizations that, uh, uh, that, that had that mentality and uh, operate with that mentality. And then you got those in the general public that aren't a member of the Ku Klux Klan or any other group, but they got that mentality. And that's why I've started trying to explain to people the day of the robes and hoods are kind of fading away. You know, you got because it's, it's the mentality that's really dangerous. And if you remember Charlottesville, Virginia, where they had a, a, a young girl killed and hit by a car, and they, night before, they had a ticket, a ticket light celebration. And I was really blown away again then because not one of them had a, a robe or hood or anything. They dressed in plain clothes, khaki, and the face wasn't covered. So uh, it, it's becoming to be a more dangerous situation. So your, clearly your childhood was, like you say, Scott, an incredibly dysfunctional one. Do you think that all the other clan members that you met, or a large percentage of them at least, came from similarly disaffected type of backgrounds? Absolutely. The ones I talk to and even the ones I talk to now that I, I work with trying to, you know, get them to leave that organization and, and that way of life, it's kind of a, it's kind of a common denominator. They usually have a, now, not all of them, you know, and they're not all cut from one cookie cutter, but the uh, majority of them come from a lifestyle like that, background, broken homes, and uh, wards of the state, and, you know, just very dysfunctional families. But, yeah, it's very common. So you've come out the other side of this, and what is your new mission now? Well, to start with, I guess, you know, uh, I'll go, I say 2008, 2008, uh, I got sick. I'd been working in hurricane relief of uh, Hurricane Katrina down in Louisiana, and I came home, and I got sick, and I thought I had the flu. I didn't, it kept on and lasted, and I ended up going to the doctor, and it wasn't, I te- my stomach was beat up with stum- uh, stomach hole. And like I told you, I think before we started the program, I have no doubt what what those, uh, what caused it. And it was all the guilt and anger and hatred that I held over the years that I uh, ate myself up from the inside. Because I left the clan, I went in the seclusion, and I was in seclusion for years, you know, before. And then I had to go to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, because I had the sister that had breast cancer and take care of her. But after I got sick, I ended up having to have three-fourths of my stomach removed. And six months later, I had to have another surgery and then almost died. And uh, I had a lot of recovery time. I had a lot of time to think and uh, reminisce of my entire life. My sister 
on her deathbed asked me, said, you know, do you regret the things that you did when you were in the plan? I said, yeah, I do. And she told me, she said, well, you know, you can take those things and use them and, and help people. And I kind of, I kind of, I heard what she said, but I kind of, I just kind of blew it off. But uh, after I got sick and had time to think and reminisce and everything, uh, I remembered what my sister said. And then I remember seeing a gentleman on TV when I was inside the movement, which was Daryl Davis, and what he was doing. And at the time, in the mindset I was in, I thought he was crackpot. <laughs> and I tell him that today. And we laughed about it. And, uh, so, Scott, just to cut you off there, can you just explain quickly who Daryl Davis is? I'm sorry. I'm just saying, can you please explain quickly who Daryl Davis is for the listeners? Sure. Daryl Davis is a musician from Bethesda, Maryland, there, Silver Springs. He's a boogie-woogie piano player. He played with Chuck Berry, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, many, many uh, celebrity play, uh, musicians he has played with. And he also wrote a book, Clandestine Relationships. And what and he, he's got another mission. He goes around and meets with active clan members and tries to sit down and have a conversation with them and uh, try to help them get out of the movement. Because he always had this question, uh, you know, how can you hate me if you don't know me that he developed at a very young age? And uh, it's been very successful. He's, He's been, I think, responsible for getting like maybe a little over 200 people out of the clan. And I, I saw him, like I said, I saw him on TV. And at the time, I thought he was crackpot, but when I was recovering, a show, a show came on Discovery Channel about Daryl Davis running a special on me. And uh, at that time, what he said made sense. And uh, I contacted him through Facebook, and uh, he responded, uh, sent me his phone number. We talked several times on the phone, and he eventually flew down to Memphis to uh, visit me. And our relation, we sat down, our relationship was grew from there. And uh, it's, it's just like he says, you sit down for five minutes, you find out you have something in common even with your worst enemy and uh actually we did bb king from indianola mississippi he played with bb king and uh being a musician that we had that was something we had in common and we kind of built from there and i would say i was caught in the middle of a hard uh dark dark place I had, on one side of the fence, I didn't have any friends because I joined the clan and no one wanted to have anything to do with me. And the clan didn't, definitely didn't want to have anything to do with me because I was a race trader in their terms, you know, because I'd left the uh, movement. You say but, race, race trader, is it? Yes. Race trader is the term for someone who's defected from the clan. Race trader, yeah. And... Uh, so, you know, that was the term I was labeled with. And, uh, of course, they really weren't friends anyway. But uh, Daryl Davis, like I said, I reached out to him. And during this dark spot that I was in, I even contemplated, 
contemplated suicide. And uh, Daryl Davis reached out to me, flew down and met me. And not only did he extend his hand, uh, he opened his own, you know, opened his heart to me, and we, we just built the relationship from there. And he's no longer just a friend; he's a brother. That's fantastic, and I think you might have overlooked one really important point there, Scott. For the listeners, Daryl Davis is an African American man, so oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so Absolutely. that man has some serious balls, as we would say. And I, uh, it'd be fantastic to talk to him and have him on the show, Scott, uh, and and talk talk us through that. It's a uh, it's an incredible, incredible oh, thing. Sure he would be happy to. And you know, I, I, something else I didn't mention uh, during this time that I was in the Klan, and of course the Klan didn't know it, but uh, there was always this little bitty voice in the back of my head: Do you really believe the things you're doing? And, 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 you know, preaching and going around and recruiting people. Do you really believe in the things you, you say you believe in? And that's because I had, it was something that, that nobody really knew, but I was raised by a black baby. Okay. Can you just explain that in a little bit more detail yeah, for us? Yeah, I was raised by a black lady. It was a black lady that was a caretaker for my grandmother. My mother was adopted, and she was working for my grandmother when they brought my mother in on a pillow as a little baby. She raised my mother. She raised my older brother. She raised me, my older sister, and my two younger uh, siblings. And uh, it, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just bad. We were family. We were family. I loved her and she loved me. And uh, I, we had get-togethers with her family. And they, it was just, you know, like I said, it was just a unique thing. We was all one big family. And I grew up with her grandson. His name is Skimp. lives out in California. And uh, actually named Ricardo uh, Hawkins. But uh, I've always known him as Skimp. We used to play together as kids and, and visit. And, uh, and even when I would go down to Rebecca's house, you know, it was the same thing. I'd play with the people in the neighborhood. And uh, a lot of them I'm in touch with today that and we're, we're the best of friends and we're still family. And actually, it's really sad that I'm very grateful that I got to make amends with Rebecca of things that I did before she passed away. She, I went to her door and not only did she open the door, she opened her arms and hugged me and said I knew you'd be back home soon. And, I, and if nothing ever negative was ever said about it. And she even did some uh, you know, a film with me and a doc, short documentary and it was really great to have, be able to work with her. I'll cherish her signs, you know, forever. And she passed away, actually, uh, two years ago, two days before her 104th birthday. Wow. And I was not I was not able to attend the funeral because I was in the hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, for surgery. And her grand, grandkids, uh, 
they streamed the funeral live on Facebook just so that I could see it. It was really an emotional thing and really I'm very grateful. This is this is so fascinating, Scott. So you were raised effectively by this this incredible woman, Rebecca, as this African American woman and, and her family. And during the time that you were in the clan, was she aware of what was going on? Oh yeah, she was aware of what she was what was going on. She didn't like what I was doing. She but she didn't disown me. She, uh, I, I, you know, I, I kind of put her to, to the side, and I didn't visit or anything like that for years. And uh, finally, when I got out, is when I went to her door and knocked on it. And she opened her arms and, and hugged my <clears throat> hugged my neck. But uh, yeah, she she. She in one of the documentaries she came, she said she didn't, you know, never gave up on me. She said if I continued to do that, she wouldn't like me either. And I can understand that. But uh, I, I learned a lot from her because you know, my grandmother didn't my grandmother did not like she didn't want to have anything to do with me as a kid and a baby. And I was named actually, actually named after Rebecca. Her name was Rebecca Scott Hawkins, and they named me after Becky. And uh, it, it was just, uh, you know, a, a crazy, crazy, crazy thing. This is I find this so incredibly interesting, Scott. And th- and thank you so much for sharing this with us. What what this seems to highlight to me, and, and this is a, a reoccurring theme with a lot of people that are in, in a similar situation and have gone through similar stuff to you, Scott, in terms of being disaffected and seeking uh, solace in things that are inherently unhealthy for us as a result of experienced trauma, particularly as a child. And, you know, the upbringing that you had, as I said before, is an incredibly dysfunctional one. And it stresses to me the importance of building families and keeping families together and to to mitigate the likelihood of broken families and abuse. Because if you can address these major issues, then you'll largely stop a lot of the, the disaffected youth. You know, that the, the, if you're talking about like African-American children that, are, that experience the same stuff as you, they are more likely to head towards like-minded individuals as well and end up in, in, in the, in the African-American gangs. And, it, and like you say, it didn't really matter which gang it was. It was just that feeling of being, of being welcomed and being validated really. And so actually, I think actually it's the same thing as the African American games, you know, street games, you know, uh, it's actually no different. They, that's, that's what they did. They looked for a place to fit in and they found it through these games. And I've, I've had a chance to, uh, you know, today I, I, I talked to adults and uh, young people and groups and uh, school kids that come through town on the civil rights journey and adults. And uh, I've also had a chance to talk to some gang members. So, uh, you know, I, I, I reach out to, to, to all. So my next question, Scott, how do we improve things going forward? 
to improve things. It's simple, really. People wouldn't realize how simple it is. And it's uh, one word, communication. You know, communication and conversation. You know, we, we've been divided for so long, we, have to, we need to sit down and be able to sit down at the table and talk. And it's just like Daryl Davis said, some some of his uh, talk, you know, you know, you may be pounding on the table, hand on the table, uh, and, and, and maybe raising your voice, but you're still talking and you're not fighting. And uh, sooner or later, you can find something you got in common and you build from there. But they, it's really simple. It's just communication and conversation. It is one of the main things that I think uh, we really need, you know, in this era of what we're going through. One thing I, I neglected to ask earlier, Scott, was when you when you finally exited the clan, what were the ramifications, and were you fearful for your life at any point? Well, I really wasn't fearful for my life anymore. You know, they when I joined. You know, of course, I hunted the Imperial Wizard down and uh, talked with him. And he told me, he said, well, we're having a rally in Chippewa, Mississippi on a certain day. So uh, uh, I went to that rally. It wasn't far from my home. Uh, and the regular clansmen and, and the Imperial Wizard and Grand Dragon of the state at that time, they all put their arm around my shoulders and, and said, oh, we'll take care of you and protect you and, and, and teach you things. And, and they did. But they just taught me the wrong things. So uh, I, I really wasn't fearful for my life at that time. But they send you through a series or classes and things like that that actually don't do nothing but brainwash you. And uh, then, then you can start preparing for your life because you find out a lot of uh, inside secrets. Effectively, the clan college, really, isn't it? Not to be confused with clown college. Exactly. And uh, they've got what they call also an inner circle. The inner circle of the clan is, you know, they got members inside that inner circle that not just all member, all general population in the clan is in. It's just a number of uh, different clan members, and the general population doesn't even know who they are. Excuse me. And uh, the reason for this is the people that are inside the center, center, middle of the circle, are the ones that go out and commit acts of violence. And the general public doesn't know who they are in case law enforcement comes around and starts asking questions. Nobody knows anything except for those that were inside the circle and committed these violent acts. The, the, the incidents that have been going on in the U.S. recently, the, like the whole George Floyd thing, is there any chance that the, the police involved and I don't want to get caught up in the politics because I don't know enough about it, but is there any chance that they are involved with the Klan? Well, I, I, as of now, it has, nothing's come out. 
I know that police officers had problems in the past and, uh, with uh, uh, African Americans and uh, mistreating them and abuse, but uh, it, it really, it really doesn't matter. It, like I said, it goes back to that mentality. And he had that racist mentality, and that's what's really dangerous. You can be standing in the grocery store, and the person behind you that had that mentality, and you'd never know it. And I used it. Uh, example, you can line five plants and you up against the wall and the ropes and hoods. You know what they stand for. But then you line five of the, uh, say, those in Charlottesville, Virginia, they were dressed in plain clothes, no mask or anything, lining them up. You don't know who, you know, what they believe or who they are. So that's where, you know, the danger is, is, is headed to. Do you have any plans to run for government to try and promote your message, Scott? No, not right now, because, because like I said, there's some health problems that I had that I'm finally, finally getting a hold of and getting getting myself back to normal. But I did run for governor when I was inside uh, the Klan movement and uh, I ran for governor of Tennessee and wide open as a racist and a white nationalist uh, agenda. So that's where, you know, I stood on that. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I was really out there. I mean, I ran for that and then the state representative and actually did not come in last on the state representative of the seven candidates. And I think I came in third out of seven. Really? Wow. What, what percentage of the votes did you get, do you mind me asking? Uh, that was back in 1992. I, I re I'll be honest with you, I really don't recall. But it was a big district. It was a big district. And even... Uh, some of the ones that, uh, you know, polled less than myself were incumbents. So, wow. uh, you know, I beat out some incumbents in that race. So that, so that really shows us that there is, there's, there's a reasonable following, uh, certainly behind, you know, this, this type of organisation, albeit a few years ago. I think it's really important to also not get caught up in consuming the news and just being bombarded by a lot of fear-mongering by the, by the news. My, I've been to the US on two occasions for good periods of time. I haven't made it to the southern states as yet, although, sorry, I've been to Texas. And my experience with the US was nothing but positive. The only challenge that I had was when I arrived in San Francisco and Border Patrol put me through the ringer because my electronic visa hadn't registered in their system and I was detained for like three hours while they were trying to figure it out. But apart from that, uh, I had a really wonderful experience and, and the experience with every race and creed throughout that journey was was really great. And I think, like you say, that, that whole communication thing, if people are able to start the conversation, then you can really connect with people through storytelling and work out that you've got commonality like you and Daryl and, uh, you know, just forge this amazing turnaround that you've been able to do. I think it's really fantastic and I think you should be super proud. 
Oh, well, you know, the United States is, you know, a great country. Yes, you can come and have a, a great experience and stuff, but it's, you know, you get down into the, like, the southern part and you can, there's a whole different, it's a whole different country down south. And uh, it, just like the state of Georgia, the state of Georgia is very, very clannish. They uh, stick together and, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of clan activity out of Georgia and always has, but uh, they're a tight knit group and they stick together. And you, you can, if you ever go to Georgia, you can you can feel you can feel the effects of that. Well, I hope you know by the time I get there that things are starting to to improve themselves. You know, my own personal views are. <laughs> It, like we are no different to each other and and i've had moments in my life where i've where i've been where i've said racist things and it was an ignorance thing you know growing up in new zealand we've got a uh, you know rather large um maori and pacific island um you know cultures all throughout new zealand in australia you got all the uh, a lot of indigenous uh, aboriginal people as well Torres Strait islanders like, and when when you actually get a chance to sit down and and just get to know anyone, you know, as long as they're inherently a good person, if they if they come from a place of love and abundance, you always get on well with them. If that's where you're coming from as well, and it's pretty obvious that trying to stay hateful for for extended periods of time is a not sustainable, but b really fucking bad for your health as well. Oh yes, very much so, and I'm a prime example of that. I mean, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, you know, I, I, I got, I got really deep into the white supremacist group. You know, it was, uh, uh, I knew, I knew some of the members that, uh, and actually the uh, Imperial Wizard of the Klan group that uh, killed the three civil rights leaders, uh, members and. Uh, down in Philadelphia, Mississippi, that uh, inspired the movie uh, Mississippi Burning. And uh, then there was Byron De La Beckwith who murdered uh, Medgar Evers. I was, a, I was a godson to him. So I, I, I got really deep in, into the movement and uh, really close to a lot of the, the older generation and most of those in jail are dead now. It was uh, it was a, it was an experience. Of, I, I say I hate that I had to do it, but in a way, it's made me the person I am today. Well, I, I think you know for for your own life, Scott. I think it's important not to hold on to any regret and. Just, you know, like you say, realize that this is sort of everything that's led up to this point has allowed you to become this person today. And and we're not really defined by what we've done. It's sort of who we've become in a, in a lot of ways. And I know there's always exceptions to that, I think. But, you know, for you to turn around your life like this and now be a, a staunch advocate for race relations is really powerful. And your story is really extraordinary, and I hope the people listening uh, agree as well. You, you've got 
a daughter and have you got any other children? I got and, twin boys and a daughter. And uh, actually, actually, my involvement with these movements damaged my relationship with my family. Uh, and my, even my one of my sisters, uh, I, they didn't agree with what I was doing, and my daughter didn't. And even one of my sons, it's uh, is an adult now. He got him, you know, he was starting to get involved and follow in my footsteps and uh, do some of the things of intimidation that I, I started out doing. But gratefully, uh, I got out in time that uh, he didn't he didn't take uh, action or or let that life, you know, take him over. And uh, there's no problem with that whatsoever now. And even my daughter, I didn't see my daughter for years and years because she didn't believe in what I was doing. And she had a, she got married and had a baby, and I didn't even know it. But uh, our relationships, you know, with my with my kids now are, are great. We made amends, and you know, couldn't be any better. Wow, it's really great, Scott. And- and the reason I heard about you is that you were just recently on Tony Robbins's podcast as part of a an amazing panel of really fascinating people in North America. Can you tell uh, us a little bit about that? Yes, I was on, of course, not only that, you know, my daughter and I appeared on Steve Harvey show, uh, show with, with Daryl Davis. And uh, I was able to talk to my daughter and apologize for the past and the way things went at that time. But yes, I just did Tony Robbins, and that was a very, a very nerve-wracking uh, uh, show I did because you know Tony Robbins is you know a very, very intelligent man that uh, has a lot of knowledge of, uh, about everything and. It was very, it was very nerve-wracking, but it was a great experience, you know. He invited me to a retreat that he had or is having in November and also one in December as his guest and down in Florida where he has sometimes like 15,000 people. And uh, I, I'm seriously considering attending one of them. Well, I would I would strongly recommend, as I mentioned the other day, that you get down to that. That'll be a life changing experience, I'm sure. But going on the Tony Robbins and the Steve Harvey show wasn't the only time that you're on the telly. You were on the Sally Jesse Raphael show back in the '90s, dressed in your clan outfit. Is that right? Yes. You you yes. are you are the bloke that we, uh, you know, because we had about three TV channels in New Zealand at that time. And Sally, Jesse Raphael and Phil Donahue were shows that were available. And I remember seeing episodes of clan members on there. And that might've been you. Yes. I was on both shows. I was on Phil Donahue and Sally, Jesse Raphael. And uh, it was uh, a couple more that I was on at the, at the time. Uh, yeah, it's very possible you did see me on there. I was on Sally Jesse Raphael. I think I was on her show twice. So, so you had. Yeah, a- I was in. Uh, I was on her show twice, and then uh, Phil Donahue, and uh, I was 
on there as a full-blown racist and <laughs> spouting racist ideas and stuff. And that's the reason I use the term uh, reform racist because that's exactly what I was. Uh, it doesn't matter what I doubted about myself. I'm still, I was still guilty of, of everything just like a regular Klansman. I mean, I take full responsibility for what I did and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, just as responsible as they are. Scott, this has been, for me at least, an incredibly interesting conversation. And I'll say it again, we're really grateful that you were able to come on and share some of your stories. Before we wrap things up, is there any message that is important to you that you want to convey to our audience today? Yeah, yeah I, I guess the main thing is, like I said, I went back to the question that you asked, you know, uh, and I, I told you it was communication and, and conversation. You know, we it's just like sitting in a cafeteria somewhere. You walk in the cafeteria and you see whites sitting with whites and blacks sitting with blacks. You know, and they just, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. They just feel comfortable with their own people. But, you know, all it takes is getting up from your seat and walking across the room and sit down and sit down with them and start talking with them. And that's what that's, that's the main thing we have to do is just beef up our conversation and uh, and uh, communication and and see see what we come up with in in common and, and build from there. It's not really a hard thing to do. You can know? feel uncomfortable at first, but sure. But you know, the way I look at it, never give up. We can never give up. There is a chance for change. People can change, and I changed. And if I changed, anybody can change. Because I was, like I said, really deep, in, deep into the movement, and I think uh, that's where we need to start. Scott Shepard, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you for sharing your views, your ideas, and your wonderful message on the Become Your Own Superhero Show. Scott Shepard, everybody. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world... I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.